Welcome to the 33rd episode of Delika, a podcast between two friends about the latest in politics, society, and feminism. In Indonesia and the world, I'm Sweden Lee. And I'm Stephanie Tankilinsen. And this week, we're going to talk about the ongoing Rohingya humanitarian crisis that's happening in Myanmar right now. We're going to break down exactly what's happening, as well as give a little bit of context on who the Rohingya people are and why are they caught up in this tension and conflict in their own home country. We felt that it was important for us to try to understand this conflict and what potential problems they will have to face ahead. Apologies, we're not experts on uh, Myanmar, but we definitely try our best to do all the proper research and to try to share that with you guys. And in particular with this topic, it is an event and a crisis that's changing every day, so there might be gaps in terms of the latest facts. Yeah. We're recording this on the Sunday before we go live. Sunday, September 17th. And we're also going to talk a little bit about how the international media has shaped this myth of Aung San Suu Kyi as the democratic hope, and how in reality, the politics of what's happening in Myanmar right now is much more complicated and nuanced. And as a result, we have the humanitarian crisis in our hands right now. Mm-hmm. Here's to it. Catastrophic and completely unacceptable. The words of UN Secretary General Antonio Guterres describing the attacks against Muslim Rohingya in Myanmar. As more people flee to Bangladesh, what will it take to stop this violence? This is Inside Story. So as of Sunday, September 17th, uh, we know that there is an estimated 370,000 Rohingya who has fled from persecution by the Burmese army and their home Rakhine state to Bangladesh. Government security forces has burned villages, carried out mass rapes, and executed a lot of civilians. When we talk about the subject, we're going to use both the terms Myanmar and Burma. They, they mean the same country, like we're all talking about the same country, but there's controversy about the use of the names because Myanmar is the term that was used by the military junta when they took over in the 60s. And so a lot of the international community are hesitant to use Myanmar because it means a sort of acknowledgement of the military junta. But then again, it's also the official name, so we're going to use it interchangeably. But I think it's important to note the sort of like baggage that comes with the use of these names. Mm-hmm. And what brought about this crisis is that on August 25th, there was a report that a group of violent Rohingya insurgents attacked a number of Myanmar's police outposts and borders between Myanmar and Bangladesh. And reportedly, they killed 12 security forces. And in response to this attack against the security forces, the Myanmar army came in and attacked all of the villages in Rakhine state that had uh, Rohingyas in an attempt to weed out all the insurgents that might have been involved in the attack. Mm -hmm. So basically, a big part of 
this entire international conflict is not only the displacement of people, the international attention has also really focused on Aung San Suu Kyi, who is a Nobel Prize winner for peace, who has been a vocal advocate for democracy in Myanmar. And she's currently the state counselor of Myanmar, which is a position that was specifically created for her. It's almost like a prime minister position because she's barred constitutionally from running as president and actually having control of the army. So the current president created this position for Aung San Suu Kyi so that she can have some kind of power for the sake of Burmese democracy, right? Yeah. So one is the people of Myanmar has not spoken out against the persecution of Rohingya people, such or even in general, they just have such an antipathy. And I think this is a big part of the basis why Suu Kyi hasn't really come out against the military persecution. So even though she's facing a lot of international criticism, she knows and people really underestimate the fact that she's pretty powerless to do anything against the military. She thinks that like, okay, if I speak out against the military... I will lose popularity within my base and basically won't accomplish anything except having the international community be okay with me and not exile me from the UN uh, meetings, right? So there's that political aspect of her response. And actually a big part of the hate-mongering is being done by Buddhist monks. In particular, one of the leaders of the hardline Muslim group Mabata translates to Patriotic Association of Myanmar, and his name is Ashin Wirantu. This organization has been banned by Suu Kyi's government in July 2017 because the government tried to crack down on hate speech. So Wirantu, who wears you know all of the monk garb and you would think that is promoting peace, has actually made very controversial speeches promoting violence against Muslims, saying that you can be full of kindness and love, but you cannot sleep to a mad dog. Mm-hmm. Um, if we are weak, our country will become Muslim. So he's really propagating this idea that um, the Rohingya people will take over Myanmar and change the entire country's genetic and uh, religious makeup. And But this is patently untrue because Rohingya people are very much a minority within Myanmar itself. According to various reports, there's only 2 to 5% that is Rohingya. Like, there's no way that they can spawn, quote-unquote spawn, um, in a way that will be threatening to the Buddhist majority. In that, it's just really strange to me how a country, people can, like, hate one particular minority so much that's very powerless, right? Because unlike Chinese Indonesians, I can I can see why people would resent Chinese Indonesians if they believe in this inequality myth. But... Why would you hate people who are very much powerless? You refuse to educate them. You refuse to give them health care. You refuse to like give them any means of support. So why would you hate someone that's just that you have given basically nothing for? So what's interesting about the Rohingya in Rakhine, right? Historically speaking, during the time of British colonial rule in the 1800s, the British was in control of what is now modern-day Myanmar. And in order to prop up the economy, the British actually had a policy of migrating a lot of what is now known as India and Bangladesh, workers from that region, from the Bengali region, to come to Rakhine State. And these were people who are ethnically not Myanmarese, not Burmese, and they are almost all Muslims. So they were so there was a mass migration of these communities to Rakhine State. And 
a lot of the local Buddhist Burmese people were not happy that these people were just coming in, taking their jobs, settling, you know, setting up shop in their country. And I think that's a that's an important historical context to understand why the Rohingya are so hated by the Buddhist Burmese population. Yeah. And actually, the Rakhine state itself historically used to be a Muslim, an ancient Muslim kingdom called Arakan. And some people of the Rohingya population claim that they came from that kingdom. They're descendants of that kingdom. So technically speaking, they have the rights, uh, sort of like the native rights to have been in that land. But the Burmese government has a very different perspective on this. They think that the people, the Rohingya people who live in Rakhine state are not at all an ethnic group. Like this is literally a, a, a term that the generals from the Burmese army has used. Like they're not an ethnic group native to that area. They're not native to Myanmar and they want them out. In order to understand why people are so pissed off that Aung San Suu Kyi is not the democratic hope that they have hoped for, we gotta talk about her background. Like, who is this lady? So, who is? Why are people so disappointed in her, and like, why? What has led to this? She is the daughter of General Aung San, who is Myanmar's independence hero. So, a, a very revered and highly respected figure. Mm-hmm. So, so by virtue of being his daughter, she's already. By the time she was born, she was already very respected, and. Uh, Sushi actually doesn't know her father because her father was assassinated when she was just two years old. Mm-hmm. Sushi uh, is Western educated. She went to Oxford and studied in uh, philosophy, politics, and economics, which is basically the government degree. So yeah, she she's Western educated. You know, she studied in Oxford and she actually met her husband, and they had two kids together. Um, and so she lived a good portion of her life abroad. And then in 1989, she went back to Myanmar to care for her critically ill mother. Mm -hmm. And this was during the time when the military junta was very much in power and uh, going about their oppressive dictatorship ways. So Aung San Suu Kyi, who was part of the National League of Democracy, that's the party she's in, she started to organize these nonviolent protests and rallies, sort of modeled after what Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. has done. So she was very much a proponent of nonviolence in in fighting against the dictatorship. Uh, Unfortunately, in 1989, Aung San Suu Kyi was placed in house arrest. And for the next 21 years, Aung San Suu Kyi was placed in various forms of house arrest, uh, a total of 15 years, until she was released in 2010. And during that time, the international community really saw her as this figure of resistance mm-hmm. and a figure of pro-democracy against the military junta to the point that in 2001, she was given the Nobel Peace Prize. And of course, Aung San Suu Kyi couldn't attend the Nobel, uh, the Nobel Prize ceremony. And I think a lot of the international media really used that moment as sort of like the Nobel Peace Prize winner cannot even leave her country to receive the prize. Like how amazing is she? An emotional reception. Thousands of supporters of Myanmar's pro-democracy leader Aung San Suu Kyi cheer her much-anticipated release and sing the national anthem. During the time of her house arrest, the international media knows her only as the, the activist, right, the resistance fighter. Mm-hmm. But they don't really know how she would govern, how like politically where she would sit. And then now, seven years after her release, they realize, oh, she might not be as democratic as we think she is. Because even though she espouses these goals of democracy and uh, freedoms for the people, that does not include the Rohingya people. Yeah. 
And like even foreign journalists who previously talked a lot about how um, how great she was and reported on her um, wrote down articles saying that oh like we actually don't know her we don't know who she is like besides this image that they built up of her like in a way I almost feel like her myth has been tokenized right like she's the tokenized Asian woman who you know has a flower in her hair and um, has been built up into this myth right like so that I just think it's a good lesson for press and the international committee to be careful about tokenizing people without really scrutinizing everything about who they are and what they are like they feel like they felt too comfortable because she's western educated from oxford and assumes all of this set of belief without really like challenging her on different issues i think for a lot of the international media it was easy to encapsulate the problem with myanmar to be like it can be solved with Aung san suu kyi right they didn't really go dig deeper into the internal conflict and you know the nuances of political reality in Myanmar. They were just like, oh, we've gotten Aung San Suu Kyi out. You know, we've advocated for a release. She's now uh, in power. That solves everything, right? Like, So I think we cannot, I think international media and outside observers, you cannot just encaps- you cannot just try to find the most perfect, easy solution because rarely is politics easy, right? Or if it is, something's wrong. So we know that the Rohingya has been persecuted by the Burmese military over the decades, right? Like this is not the first time they've been persecuted. But their situation politically is also not great because guess what? They don't have any citizenship rights. So basically, um, in 1982, there was a new citizenship law that was passed, which rendered the Rohingya stateless. Like they don't have, they can't have an ID or like a passport or anything like that. Um, under the law, Rohingya are not recognized as one of the country's 135 ethnic groups. And the Rohingya is the only ethnic group that is Muslim. Yeah, so, that's like a big part okay. of it. <laughs> right. And I think this idea of like, they don't have paperwork to go anywhere, like it was res- a complete restriction of their movement is really key because the people who are in there, they can't leave Myanmar in search of a better life. Yeah, so basically this law established that there were three there are three levels of citizenship. The most basic level is supposed to be naturalized citizenship. So there must be proof that the family lived in Myanmar prior to nineteen forty eight and they have to be fluent in one of the national languages. Yeah. Many Rohingya don't have such paperwork because it was unavailable or denied to them. So it's just creating the system of like bureaucratic nightmare. Um and because of this law, they lost their rights to study, work, travel, marry, practice their religion, and access health services. Um, they can't vote, and um, they have to go, even if they try, they have to go through like a lot of citizenship loops, such that actually, um, from a report from Al Jazeera, said that so far, only around 400 Rohingya has passed this citizenship out of one test, million, and like out of one million. So that just shows you how impossible this is and one of the things that they have to do if they really do want to get citizenship is that they have to kind of like renege their status as rohingya because rohingya is a term 
that is ancient in terms of its roots. It means the inhabitants of the Rohang region, which is an, an old name for the Arakan state. So this is a name that the people themselves, the Rohingya people themselves, have chosen for themselves. Right? They self-identify as Rohingya, and the international community called them Rohingya. But the Burmese government does not acknowledge this term. They call them, and this is a pejorative term in uh, Myanmar, they call them Bengali because it's in a way saying like, you're not, you're not Burmese, you're not Myanmarese, like you're not, you're from a different country, from a different region entirely, right? Right, to the point where, okay, so we actually try to research how to pronounce a lot of things before this episode, and we're trying to find uh, someone from Myanmar saying Rohingya, and as much as we tried, and we t- watched a lot of videos about this, of interviews with Suchi, um, talking about the Rohingya, and she never says the word. Like, this is part of, like, taking away that identity, right? Like, mm-hmm. this is a clearly a big problem. She refers to them as Muslims or them, you know? Like, a very strategic way of not saying their identity. I mean, it's, it's kind of crazy, right? Like, the systematic uh, disenfranchisement of these people, like, from the violence, like, the physical violence, to the political violence, in a way, but also, like, all these cultural things where you really cannot be in any way associated with this community if you want to function in Burma. Like that is such a deep level of disenfranchisement that it's kind of crazy to think that it's per- it's perpetuated by the so-called democracy. It's kind of crazy to think that this government is a democracy. Are they really democratic though? If Suchi doesn't have control over the military and just like people don't have access to a lot of things are they really a democracy i don't know i think i really feel for these people because in a way um they're really being denied citizenship in the most fundamental way right like these people are not being acknowledged as myanmar citizens even though they've lived there for generations right like even if you're going to take a less charitable view and, you know, discounting all the fact that they've lived here for hundreds and hundreds of years, like even some people said from the Silk Road times, right? Um, oh, these people only came in 1851. Like 1851 was like like around 180 years ago. That's a long time to be in a country that doesn't acknowledge you, the way you've grown up to live all of your life. And it's astounding to see that there's not much civil society in Myanmar who are rising up against this. This is like a lot of international pressure that's been like hounding Myanmar. And that's a really important thing to consider about this crisis, right? Like the local population in Burma has no sympathy for the Rohingya. They're of the same opinion as the army in the sense like you need to have a hard line against them. Otherwise, they're going to take over. Like they're going to spread uh, Islam and take over Buddhism. And a lot of international media has dubbed them the most persecuted minority group in the world. Because... Although this current conflict is really heinous and horrendous, this is not the first time that the Rohingya has fled Myanmar. Yeah. We're thinking about, like, supposedly after Aung San Suu Kyi was released in 2010 from her house arrest, that this is going to be the dawn of a new democracy in Myanmar. But for the Rohingya people, they have not felt any difference in terms of how they're being treated. Right. And I think a lot of people have bought into this idea that the Rohingya insurgency as terrorists, right? People have this idea that Islam or Muslims are dangerous because of all of this, the terrorism that, and all the conflict that the Middle East has, and then kind of have used that in Myanmar to kind of show, oh, look, this is the danger if you have a Muslim population that, you know, there'll be Sharia law and there'll be um, um, a conflict there. I mean, this is like, this is again feeding into what, 
we talked about in our last episode with Sadia when she said like there's such a big myth of people there's such this perception that people equate Muslims with terrorists like if you're a Muslim you're definitely a terrorist like that has become the de facto narrative um, I think in Burma certainly perpetuated by people like Wirantu like the monk and uh, the Burmese government you know that's why they have no qualms about getting rid of them because the, in in their mind these people are potential terrorists and we're all in this global fight against terrorism so surely what we're doing is right even though it's such a incredible act of human rights violation against the Rohingya people A lot of governments, a lot of international organizations like the UN has come out and said, has labeled this crisis as like, some people have said it's genocide, some people have said it's ethnic cleansing. They do not shy away from the huge humanitarian impact that's happening here. And these are all words that obviously Suchi and the Burmese government and the Burmese army are not willing to use to describe what's happening. Some people in the Burmese government have said, like, even if they come back, we don't want them back. Right. So a lot of the international response is like, how do you resolve this? Like, not only how do we resolve the humanitarian crisis, how we're going to take care of the people who have fled, but when the time comes for them to go back to Myanmar, like, can we even morally send them back without some sort of resolution with Suchi and the Burmese government to make sure that when they go back they're they have rights or they have some semblance of like security for their well-being neither me or Steph are Muslim yeah but we both sympathize and empathize with a lot of the Rohingya people and I think this is not a question about religion in a way right mm-hmm. this is a question humanitarian yeah it's a it's a humanitarian crisis it's about human rights it's about claims of genocide and ethnic cleansing on the part of the Burmese government. Like, we need to understand that what's happening right now is that almost half a million people are rendered stateless and are thrown every single day for their lives and their futures. Yeah. It's a complicated issue. But it's certainly an issue that's worth talking about. want to find out why this exodus is happening. We would like to talk to those who have fled as well as to those who have stayed. I think it is very little known that the great majority of Muslims in the Rakhine state have not joined the exodus. More than 50% of the villages of Muslims are intact. They are as they were before the attacks took place. And we would like to know why. This is what I think we have to work towards. Not just looking at the problems, but also looking at those areas where there are no problems. And that was Aung San Suu Kyi in a speech she gave just yesterday on September 19th, where for the first time she publicly addressed the crisis that's happening in Rakhine State. 
Unfortunately, as you can hear, she and the Burmese government still refuses to acknowledge the plight of the Rohingya people and the atrocities that are happening to them day by day. And as of publishing this episode on September 20th, more than 400,000 Rohingya has fled Rakhine State in Myanmar. So this is tangentially related to the Rohingya. So while we were recording this weekend, the Jakarta Legal Aid Institute, which in the past has helped the Rohingya refugees in Indonesia gain legal status in Indonesia and find aid, was actually under attack. Mm -hmm. Um, What happened was they were having a seminar which invited academics, former victims of the 1965 genocide, along with other activities, when um, the police initially tried to shut down their events, saying they don't have the right permits. And then the mob came, basically putting everyone in the building at siege. A few of my friends was there, and it was a very horrifying time for a lot of us because we were all just so concerned about our friends who are there, and it's really scary what's happening in our own country right now. We hear reports of people uh, yelling and screaming, like, kill the Communist Party, kill the Communists, basically. And Mm -hmm. basically trying to say that the people who are having the seminar and having these events at the Legal Aid Institute are all communists and therefore deserve to be exterminated, essentially. They were throwing rocks. They had hot water thermoses ready and they poured it on police who were trying to keep the peace. Fortunately, at the end of the night at 2.30 a.m., the cops finally started arresting people and uh, our friends were able to make it out uh, safely, but there are still repercussions. Mm -hmm. And it's even to the point where questions about the Communist Party coming back has been lobbied to senior officials and as well as the president himself, Jokowi, and they had to respond to it. And so the spread of false information and fake news about the seemingly red threat of communism coming back to threaten Indonesia is has really sparked a lot of tension in the community right now. Yeah, so we're basically keeping vigilant about this thing. Um, the 30th September anniversary is coming up, which is why some of these issues are popping back up. But we're just really concerned about the well-being of our friends and hope, you know, everybody stays safe. And um, you guys are in our hearts and our minds. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. You can find more information and resources of whatever we talked about on our website, delica.id. All of the audio clips that's been used in this episode Mm -hmm. are from Al Jazeera English and we'll provide links to the full news clips, music credits to John Dealey, Lee Rosevere, and of course, Broke for Free. If you like what you hear and want to support us, please review our podcast on the Apple Podcast app or whatever app you use to listen to your podcast. And please share our podcast with your friends. It's the best way to spread the word about Dialogica. If you want to get more involved, we'd love to hear from you. Our email is dialogicapodcast at gmail.com or just shoot us a message on our Facebook page. You can also find us on Instagram, YouTube, SoundCloud, and our Twitter. Please follow us in these various platforms. Our Twitter handle is at dialogicapod. Also, follow me on Twitter. It's Steph Tank. That's S-T-E-P-H-T-A-N-G-K. Thank you again and see you guys next time. Bye!